Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today's podcast is on the topic of healthcare piracy. Since the beginning, and I think very much to Sam's surprise, Be More Pirate has had the biggest response from people working across health and social care. Perhaps, though, it's no surprise that environments with lots of rules and regulations and hierarchy would in fact start to breed rebellion. However, what we've seen and learned from working with people in the UK National Health Service and across the voluntary sector is that whilst the desire for piracy might be there, it's not all that easy to do. And it's certainly not easy to do alone, which is why we wanted to do an episode or two where we speak to people who have managed to successfully challenge power within the system and show that it is possible. So I'm very happy today to have with us John Lodge and Hisham Abdullah, co-founders of HexiTime, the UK's first national time bank for health and social care. John is a former British Army captain and now head of quality improvement for London NHSE, and Hisham is a consultant paediatrician, clinical lead for quality improvement and director of medical education at Walsall NHS Trust, and a senior lecturer at Keele University in Healthcare Improvement and Patient Safety. So in a nutshell, your jobs are to make things a a damn sight better in healthcare. And they've made some pretty pirate moves in the process, not least creating HexiTime, which is what we're going to talk about today. So welcome and thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. So I think it would be great to start with just having you guys explain a little bit what the hell is HexiTime? I've introduced it as a time bank, but I think it's a lot more than that. And for everyone listening, how did you get started with that? Where did the idea come from? So essentially what we were looking for was a way of making work work better. And what we thought needed to happen was to make a simple but radical change in the rules of how we applied work but actually that made everything change and that change simple rule change was to make sure that everyone's time is valued equally and so on next time on our time bank irrespective of how many degrees you have your gender or your ethnicity one hour of work is rewarded with one credit and what that means is that you can ask for help and if i were to respond to your call i can earn a credit from you and then use it to get help from anyone else in HexiTime based on that same one credit for one hour's basis. It also means that you are now in my debt, but you don't have to pay me back. You can pay that debt forward to someone else in the community by tapping into something that you know, something that you have expertise or experience or just enthusiasm in and thereby helping others within this HexiTime community. And the genesis for this idea came really the first part of my kind of senior leadership role as, as, a, as a consultant pediatrician. And what I was getting increasingly frustrated about was just how difficult it was to get stuff done because of the limitations of budgets and line management, even though I knew what needed to happen, simply because the resource I needed was in a 
a different division within the organization. And the word division actually kind of nicely summarizes it, really. There was no way I could get that access, even though someone there may have had the intention to help me out. And that actually culminated in a series of stages in, in my life where I was actually really quite burnt out by this continual pressure of, and demands as resources became tight, as we were asked to do more for less or more with less, really. I can recognize that actually the way we were doing things just was not sustainable. And so I came across this concept of time bank in my local community, actually, and I thought, wow, <laughs> this is a really good approach that could potentially not just transform local communities like around you know, babysitting or, or gardening, but actually the way that we work within the NHS. And it was then that I kind of met John and we had similar ideas and this idea of a professional's time bank to help improve health and care was founded. At the time of meeting Hisham, I'd been wrestling with a few paradoxes that I was seeing as an NHS manager. So one thing simply was that I saw lots of people like Hisham that were burning themselves into the ground, working really, really hard. At the same time, I saw lots of people with spare time and capacity. But because they were really restricted by their job title and their job roles, didn't have a, a mechanism to redistribute their time and their effort to help others. And, you know, I think I think some people view us as one big NHS, but in practice, Hisham's talking about divisions, literally, you know, that it, it, it's not there. So one paradox was trying to think of a way that we could get people with spare time and capacity to help people that were busy working themselves into the ground. The other paradox I was increasingly getting frustrated with was that the workforce in the NHS is like 1.3 million, probably a bit more, and the healthcare system is bigger than that. And so it's not a great leap to assume that 1.3 million people with all those qualifications and experience have got lots of good ideas, lots of good innovations, lots of interesting stuff that they want to do. And yet they find it remarkably difficult to collaborate. And indeed, the system's being set up to compete in the way it's structured. And I looked at it and thought, isn't it just a real shame, a real tragedy that we're employing 1.3 million people on the taxpayers' payroll? but they're not working together around improvement and innovation. Many people actually are very restricted in their daily job description and their role and are essentially doing shift work and just on a daily grind. I thought, isn't that a great tragedy? Can't we do something different? Can't we fundamentally create a different workforce economy that is better than that? And I guess one layman's simplistic way of looking at time banking is to think that we've kind of formalized a black market of trading favors. We've managed to formalise it, and but by formalising it and labelling it and giving people a proper mechanism to do it, it can be something quite fantastic and big and not just a small underground black market. And anyone who can turn the scarcest resource into available treasure is onto some real magic. On the broad context, though, because the NHS is somewhat paradoxical. We, well, it had this really deep-seated relationship with it. And so therefore people find it difficult to criticize because people will rush to the defense of it. And then it's hard to improve something that it's hard to criticize, right? And there are obviously failings and there's obviously ways that people can make it better. And you seem to have done that so elegantly in creating something that then is, is getting support. And it's, you know, you found your way to criticize aspects of the NHS and then come in with a solution. And for us, that's always the real deal. To talk about rule breaking is one way of getting people excited by the pirate story. But the truth of the Golden Age Pirates and of all the modern pirates we talk to, it's the rule making, which is the creative act and the art. And yes, there needs to be a bit of rule breaking to create space for it. But can you give us a further bit of context as two practitioners right in the middle of, I was surprised at the stories of rebellion that we heard, but particularly from the NHS, this thing that we need to protect where people's lives are in question. Are you surprised to hear that that's the area that we've had the biggest kind of number of pirates coming forward from? Do you think... The spirit and culture of innovation there is is seeking this, or do you think there's a level of frustration that is, is resulting in people turning to rule breaking behaviours? There's a number of immediate things to mind. What might not be the answer you want to hear, but one is, you know, it's big, right? There's a numbers game there. If you, if you look at an industry that, that's that big, I think not too long ago it was the fourth biggest employer in the world. Just on a numbers game there, chances are you're going to get rebels within the ranks. But I think the other thing that struck me, particularly when I moved from the military into the NHS, was just the sheer academic intellectual calibre of people in the NHS. 
I went from a, a military where you'd rarely bump into people with a degree to working in the NHS where people have a CV littered with degrees, postdoctorate qualifications and, and all sorts of weird and weird and wonderful accolades. And so there's lots of bright people that have got that wonderful blend of intelligence, but they're working in the thick of the action in service delivery. So they've got real world experience and intellect. And so it doesn't surprise me at all the amount of innovators and people I've met in the NHS that want to do something different. And I think where things are linked to life and death in that sense, I certainly bump into more people clinically minded who recognise that status quo and not doing something isn't really an acceptable approach moving forward. In that sense, it doesn't surprise me. But for every innovator, you know, there are thousands and thousands of people who do just get on with their shift and do their daily work. There's also a, a dissonance, Sam, between the way we're, we're trained to deliver care and, and the care that we are delivering on a day-to-day basis. So I remember coming out of the medical student with these ideals in my head as to how healthcare could and should be delivered. And then immediately, first day in ED, there's not enough resources, not enough time, there's not enough capacity. I remember the frustration that was kind of through my head, you know, as we were trying to make changes, you know, throughout my career, trying to make things better for the patients who I had been, you know, tasked with serving. And that dissonance was really kind of grating at me all the way through my training, actually. And it was only my aha moment was when I did a, a leadership training fellowship. I took a year out of training to do something called a Tazi fellowship, where I learned some of these leadership and quality improvement skills. And my kind of delight and frustration was, why didn't I get taught this stuff right at the start? Why, why didn't anyone ever tell me that there are tools and techniques to make things better? And then my kind of life mission kind of pivoted then really to saying, well, if I can learn this stuff, maybe I can teach it. Maybe I can convey some of these ideas to other people, particularly bearing in mind the bureaucracy that the NHS is founded on. I mean, it is hegemony that comes from an organization that's so big and so bureaucratic, makes it you know, virtually impossible to get things done. And that's consolidated by the titles and the iconography within the NHS, you know, it, probably even more than the army, I guess, John. I mean, you know, you've got chief doctors, chief nurses, chief X and chief Y. You've got lapels that have got labels. You've got people called by their band. You know, lots of things there which are designed and built to keep people where they are and to avoid, which I'm sure it's not deliberately to avoid innovation, but it's certainly that's one of the unintended consequences. And that dissonance between the way we should be delivering care and the way we want to deliver care, I think, is where the resonance in the book comes from. There's something I really want to sort of bring up because it's at the top of my mind at the moment. I had a really long chat with some people on Friday who are across healthcare broadly in voluntary sector. And we were talking about what I feel you do is bridge a gap where it's not out and out rebellion, but it is a different way. But you've created a structure within which people can very clearly understand in terms of exchanging credit and time. And this is what's needed, a bridge between what is old power, institutional power, and new power, which I think is from the the book New Power and gets associated with Be More Pirate a lot and gets thrown around as well as like the new way, but yet very difficult to implement. And I think what you've done is you have created enough structure so it doesn't feel too scary, but allow benefits of new power to flourish around building connections, building relationships, building trust between people and leveling the playing field. In respect of that, it doesn't have to be binary. It doesn't have to be old power or new power. You can blend the two. But what kind of challenges did you have as you started to build Hexi Time? Like what did you encounter along the way where there, you know, I imagine there are people saying no or not believing that it could work because I've even definitely been involved in time banking systems before and people going that's not going to work people aren't going to sign up that sort of thing. The immediate problem is that we me and Hisham Hexi time doesn't pay for anybody's time so the immediate problem is that everybody that is doing Hexi time time banking is either doing so in their spare time or they're doing so on the NHS payroll. And of course, if it's on the NHS payroll, the line manager, the budget holder, quite rightly wants to know what their staff are doing for their money. Of course, what we want to be doing is is helping people to work better and to work differently. So we've never wanted people in the NHS to abandon the Navy, as it were, 
and go rogue. We want them to stay in the NHS because it's a phenomenal employer and trainer and mechanism for service delivery. So we need to we need to keep people in the NHS with more flexibility and more satisfaction. And so the first immediate problem I found was working with quite traditional management command and control structures that want to know how much labor you're going to get out of a shift for your money and helping them understand that collaboration is in their interest and not to be competing. So a really simple example would be somebody saying, but why would I want to let my nurse time bank in the department next door if they're not delivering a service for me in my department with that hour? Why would I do that? I'm not a charity. That's been one of the biggest hurdles in that mindset of getting people into collaborating around a greater good and not going down a traditional transactional HR route of time and labour for money. I've had different challenges, to be honest, Alex. So I've not had anyone say, no, I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to be part of this. Everyone I've spoken to around this idea got it, actually. They've recognised that putting themselves in a role-sized box isn't good for them or their service or for the improvement that they want to achieve. There's never been a kind of philosophical disagreement. What people have, have struggled with is figuring out a way of putting it around their jobs, I guess. You know, that's depends a little bit on, on the flexibility that they have in, in their kind of job plan or their agreements. But certainly the more senior folk in the organisation have got that flexibility that the kind of, the kind of ward level doctor or nurse probably has a little bit less autonomy in terms of their time. The struggles I've had with the more senior managers has been really about losing control. Typically what will happen, I'll have a conversation with, say, a medical director and they'll go, yeah, I get this entirely. Yeah, I can see how this is going to be better for my staff because they'll be more fulfilled doing stuff they really want to do, better for our services because we'll be connecting the dots and patients will stop falling in the cracks between services. And then there's a but, and the but is that doesn't fit with our strategy or we've got a different way of doing things around here. So there's a kind of almost a cognitive hurdle they need to leap before saying, right, I'm going to trust in this radical new system that actually a bit like kind of new power really bequeath this control to the masses where it's all peer-to-peer it's not top down that in itself takes a real courage as a leader to be able to release some of that power but acknowledging that then becomes a current on the currency what did you have to do about that in terms of the conversation because one it's a cognitive leap but you're presenting a solution to a well-known problem. So then there's, you know, people will be attracted to that. But then the logic flow is that certainly within a risk-averse organization, people want to know, you know, and then what's going to happen at the end. And you get into that dangerous question of what does success look like? And that terrible line, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So if you were going to do something differently, you also needed to set up a different set of success metrics and navigate the fairly stifling world of success metrics so so you didn't have to and that's often the case I think people say right we're going to prove this and then to prove that we're going to do something different we're going to measure it in exactly the same way things have gone before and then wonder why they ended up in the same place so how did you deal with that in, in such a kind of output orientated environment so I've got a couple of thoughts there one is to try and tap into everyday business as usual things that the NHS does and then demonstrate how time banking can be applied. So a common example that I cite is how lots of clinicians have to do something called clinical audit as part of their career progression. They observe and collect data for the purposes of improving that service. And they have to do it as part of their career progression. They, they, they conduct that activity and then get their boss to tick it off. And they go and essentially collect some ticks on their timesheet. And I sort of say to them, well, that's actually like a real skill, having a frontline skilled clinician with their eyes on a service collecting data, as with any improvement activity, is a you know a fundamental ingredient. There are people who will want that clinician collecting data for the diagnostics in their work. Now, rather than just send your students running around collecting tick boxes for their career progression, why don't they offer that to people that could use that time productively? So that's just one example where, where we're talking about turning business as usual activity into meaningful improvement. And of course, because it's a time bank, we can say to those people, well, when you release your student, your junior doctor, and do that audit, they're earning time credits. The time credits is, is capacity. And you can then spend those 
time credits in that capacity on other work. And your status quo, your do nothing, would have just been to let your human resource, as it were, do their audit and not get anything back in return. So getting businesses as usual into this has been quite important. And then I think my over-reflection here, purpose, right? Working on what gives people that warm, fuzzy feeling of doing something important and of value. Hisha might talk more about this in a bit, but some of our most important successes where we've had real momentum have been around things like racial equality. Because, you know, we can see racial inequality is affecting the whole workforce and people tend to lower their defences a little bit more. They become less tribal about their department or their team or their, their hospital when there's a much greater purpose at stake like racial equality. So we've increasingly started to focus on purposes that unify across professional and organisational boundaries like racial equality. I'd add a third one to that, Sam. So as well as that kind of social justice campaigns that we've been launching, which absolutely cut across organisational boundaries or any perceived boundary, the other thing that we found I've certainly used is taking this methodology or this approach almost in parallel to the normal kind of line management, you know, top-down stuff. So in a way, you've got almost like a paramilitary group doing stuff. And again, this kind of chimes with the book, really, having them almost understood to be part of our workforce although we, we kind of condone it but we don't really condone it you know we know that people will do this and we will let it happen without necessarily having to give them validation for it so by having that almost insurgency which is allowed to happen by the leaders they will know certainly as people in the organization i have that stuff will get done and probably more effectively than it will do by the generals who are commanding the troops and by just allowing that to happen, it then augments some of the, the other kind of war effort to extend the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame we've had to do that, but it works. I like it. Yeah, I like it. I love the insurgency, <laughs> we call it. What I was going to ask, I guess, you started to touch on it, like where you think the idea more explicitly of pirates or piracy, whether you use it as language or some of the principles, help to further what you're doing. Having gotten so far, I think you've got what twelve hundred or so people on Hexi Time at the moment. Fifteen hundred this morning, yeah. Very good. First thing we do every morning is check the membership and the number of activities. <laughs> some measurements are good. At least know where you are. Probably unknowingly applied some of the pirate principles in setting it up and getting it started. Like, how has that helped you and and sort of confirmed that you're maybe going down the right track? And how do you think it could be used to bring other people on board? A lot of this conversation started, it was a few months ago where I was reading the book and I was just reading so many parallels with what pirates were doing and how Hexitime was operating as an organisation. And I just WhatsApped Hisham at the time and I was like, Hisham, I I think we might be pirates. (laughs) Um, You've got to read this book and check it out because it's just ringing true for so many things we've done. For example, at the time of reading, we were being shortlisted for some really major national innovation awards in healthcare with HexiTime. And we were looking at that thinking, how, how are we actually, in many cases, up for more rewards in innovation than these massive, massive healthcare organisations? And it was through reading things in the book where actually Sam talks about that myth really around that association with like size and success. And we've recognised from a very early stage that HexiTime's success has got nothing to do with our revenue or how big our team is or what job titles me and Hisham want to give ourselves. And it's actually not even got a great deal to do with the amount of members on HexiTime either. It's all about like its outputs and what it achieves and what it enables and what it does. And the evidence is speaking for itself now in the way that we're competing with organisations that dwarf us in terms of size. So there are elements like that where the parallels were immediate. I think as well as an ex-army guy, I immediately liked the book because I thought, yeah, I don't want to be in the Navy either. Who does, right? <laughs> Who does? But as, 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 as I read deeper, I realised that me and Hisham have subconsciously between us developed this verbal code. We've never written it down. And actually, me and Hisham have been working together for like three or four years now, and we've probably only met each other about six times in person. 
And our team is spread internationally. And some people in our team have never met. But we have this common understanding and this code. And if you interviewed us separately, we'd be able to recite that code. And it just reminds me of like the illiterate pirates that had to verbalize very simple rules that you don't cross. That means that when you're having independent conversations, you can sort of scale and deliver that mission and for that greater cause without having to, you know, double and triple check everything through some clunky bureaucratic command and control structure. So it's allowed us to be really agile, really quick. The other thing at the time of reading was how much it resonated around equality and justice, where the pirates were demonstrating like real true equality for the first time in society, recognised gay marriages, allowing like voting equality on ships, all that sort of stuff. And I was thinking, actually, what we're doing at Hexitime, we're really paving a way here for true equality by recognising time as a great equaliser. And no one else is doing it in healthcare. We actually, we start to realise we might be the only people doing this in Europe. There's a few US examples, but we might be the only people doing this in Europe. And it's not unfeasible to think that if we can start to demonstrate this movement and its successes and what can be done through time equality, that eventually these big navies will start to copy it and realise that there's benefit in that. Can we expand a little bit on time equality? Because... In the moment we're in, the the kind of fight for fairness is so all around us. And I think it's one of the most entrenched rules. When you realise the game is rigged, if you carry on playing by the rules, then you play to lose, I think. But the Mm. thing is, as we look out, time and again, it's the same people that win and the same people that lose. And, you know, you'll know this across the board, but the people with the greatest likelihood of many healthcare issues will also be the same people who've got greater likelihood of fire in the home and then also have been the people with a higher rate of a school exclusion you know and so equality becomes really fundamental to any kind of systematic change and so there is always going to be a level at which work like this runs into equality and now on the other side of it what are the unintended aspects that you might have bumped into is there equality in the users that come forward? Is there a membership? And, you know, one could assume that the idea of bartering time on a digital platform is a slightly middle class, like, you know, as a construct and what you'd then do to try and open that up or even people who can afford to give time. Like there must be layers upon layers that you're beginning to discover in there and to then create a community of equals doing this thing will become, you know, ever more complex. So just because you brought it up, I think that's that's such rich territory. And would you share with us perhaps even the challenges you haven't yet got answers for, but the questions you're beginning to discover? So one of the things that continues to delight me about HexiTime is the spread of people who are joining it. We have really from the top and the bottom of healthcare, we've got the director of NHS Improvement in Scotland, lots of chief execs from various different trusts and directors on six, seven figure salaries. And you've also got porters, nurses, social workers, midwives, people who don't have the privileges of some of the others in the group. And yet here we are saying, actually, your time is is just as valuable as as, as my time. I'll give you one example of one of the early exchanges actually was for a chief exec in, I think, in Scotland, Aberdeen or Inverness, who did a, a one hour exchange with someone who worked in London, who has some expertise in producing infographics. So that was his area of expertise. He's working in an office somewhere, but that's what he knew how to do. And she benefited from that time, a little tutorial on, on generating infographics. And that was one hour exchange, one credit that goes to him that he can then use to find a coach or a mentor or a data analyst, whatever it happens to be that he needs in his team to be able to do that work. And so that's kind of leveled the platform. And the reason that's important, the links to wider societies, is I think if we were honest about our roles or the jobs that we're in at the moment, most of us have got into kind of more senior posts because we have had a corridor conversation with someone who suggested that we apply for something or that has been given an opportunity that someone else may not have had. But unless you're in those corridors, you won't have those corridor conversations. You know, the very fact that just as you described there, Sam, you know, one step makes it easier to take on the following step. For those people who don't get those opportunities will never be able to develop that little black book of contacts and then carry on. But what happens with these exchanges is it puts you enter the same room or virtual room with others who are more authoritative or more powerful in their place of work in their organization and therefore the magic happens not necessarily in that transaction not the exchange but actually what happens around it the conversation where suddenly you realize that actually the person at the other end of the exchange may be 
black or female or gay or whatever it happens to be that you have stereotyped as being less equal than you and recognize actually they have value and they can contribute. And in fact, I'm benefiting from that. And so the mind shift is as important as the resource allocation. So it's about moving mindsets, not just moving resources towards a more equitable plane where everyone is not just valued equally, but is equal in terms of what they can and shouldn't do. Thanks for that. I'm going to jump on with a couple more points there, actually, because um, Sam, your point there around like potentially this is a like a real middle class sport really worries me because I, you know, I've, I've had these concerns before. A number of us are in privileged positions of jobs to have that luxury of sharing time. What a lot of people don't recognise with time banking because of the equality is you can actually go into a time bank and just take. You don't need to give. And so in terms of that like hierarchy, equality one thing i would say that's really important is yes there are lots of those sort of like middle class people that you described with the luxury to go on there but we would urge that they go on there and they give they offer time and give it and then of course everybody else who is you know potentially doing 12 hour 13 hour shifts every other day working themselves together, they're more than welcome to come onto the time back and just take and they can just take their own development, their personal career development, or to make changes that they see in their services. And so in terms of like your time bank balance on a profile, you can go into a minus. And we have no pretense that people owe us anything. There's no obligation to ever pay back. And part of that is because, as Hisham was describing, we recognise their win-win relationships. So taking isn't literally just taking. The other thing I'd say as well is creating that command and control equality. So this all started around improving healthcare services. Traditionally, in the NHS, when we improve healthcare services, you have a director with a budget that then creates a programme. And that programme is usually dictated by what's on their agenda and what they want to spend money on. Everybody else finds a way of fitting in. And as with many things, the closer you are to the source, the better chance you have of influencing that service improvement. And we're looking at that and thinking, well, balls to that. Why should you need budget or hierarchy or job title to be able to affect a change? Because as I said, like people have got all these skills and talents. So we're letting people join the healthcare time bank that just have a stake in healthcare. So you don't have to be an NHS employee. You could be in a charity, you could be a patient, you could be an academic. And by earning credits by giving, you can then stash these credits. And with credits, you have buying power right so with credits you can then start to take a leadership position in service improvement you can start to buy in your analysts your other stakeholders that you need to take a project forward and be a proper leader and not just a sort of a, a token member at the table when we're making changes so time back is phenomenal potential for redressing that equality in command and control dynamics and there's a real sort of leap of faith there from the people who do have the privilege to get behind that and support it because it's only going to go one way and that's losing privilege and, 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 and distributing it. So interesting. Um, I had a conversation this morning with someone talking about co-production and within an NHS setting, some division somewhere and sort of them kind of getting on board with it and lots and lots of chat about how valuable it would be, but stating that they could only possibly compensate, you know, a patient or someone with lived experience on the problem solving front if they were able to be on NHS payroll with P60, national insurance number and all of that. And, you know, for some people that is just an insurmountable hurdle or it's just going to be so long and bureaucratic that they kind of thought well, it's not worth it. Again, going back to that new power idea, it's just a way of bridging some structure with something that is a bit freer. I think, you know, in terms of your success, as you said, John, that you're starting to be recognised for it. I mean, it feels to me that the equality that you've talked about is going to be the success story of it, really, but might take longer to be recognised. Because I have an example in mind of what you said before. I wanted to ask you about what you feel, other than just the simply the building of relationships and the levelling of the playing field that you're achieving, what do you feel has been one of the biggest successes that have come out of Hexy Time? Only because also we've had this horrendous year and healthcare has been in the spotlight so much. How has that played out across this year? When the pandemic broke out, I was re 
allocated from my desk job to the Nightingale Hospital in London. And I was in a position brought in to sort of run what they call like an improvement team, a, a function to make sure that, I guess, we're functioning safely and tapping into the potential to iteratively improve the service as it finds its feet in a field hospital environment. That was great, all very exciting. And I turned up and they said, you've got no budget and no staff. So <laughs> I was like, great, what can we do here? But at the same time, I was well aware that there was like passion and enthusiasm from all across the healthcare system to contribute meaningfully to the pandemic response. So I put a request out on Hexi time and I basically said, I need people, you know, a day a week to spare or even a half day a week to spare who can come over to the Nightingale Hospital, redistribute their time, join my team and help our clinicians to deliver better care every day that we're there. And within about four hours of putting out that request on Hexid time, I'd filled a team of seven people. As far as I'm concerned, as far as the hospital was concerned, completely free of charge. When I did my workforce calculation, I figured I needed I needed to fill 14 shifts per week. They were just gonna let me do it by myself and clearly leave lots of shifts empty and just kind of fudge our way through it. So I got these seven people in, didn't pay a penny for any of them. I reimbursed them with time credits for every hour that they worked for me. And they came from other hospitals in London and came and worked shifts with me for about two months in the Nightingale Hospital. And of course, what's really exciting about that is firstly, from their point of view, they had spare time. What they didn't have was a brokering mechanism to give it meaningfully to where it was needed in another part of the system. And the time credits was a way of recognising that. Secondly, for them, by contributing to something like the Nightingale, it was a real feather in their cap, you know, a real sort of career-enhancing moment to get experience on their portfolio, really rewarding for them in a way that they would have probably been like stuck working from home if they hadn't have done that. You know, and thirdly, we were able at the Nightingale to deliver all of that of no extra charge. And of course, what was happening at the Nightingale in parallel teams was that we were paying through the nose on bank and agency budgets to bring people in and literally pay them for every hour they were doing. And then finally, what was really powerful about that is all those members, once they did their shifts and they earned all their Hexi time credits, they were then going back to their host organisations equipped with capacity time credits. So on average, about 50 credits each for 50 hours work. They're now back in their hospitals with 50 hours of currency. And they can start doing all sorts of innovations and improvements and projects through their hospital organisations and start spending those 50 credits to start bringing in more collaboration from other organisations. And so that one project creates this phenomenal paying it forward cascade off the back of it. And I think it's one of it'll, it'll be one of the only examples in the pandemic in this country where a team has been created, delivered serious work with lots of hours chipped in and not paid a penny extra for it. It's a phenomenal example. It's so, so good. I'm drawing a clue on something you'd said earlier on, and it joins that. So that idea cutting through one of the criticisms of both the NHS and the bodies that circle around the NHS, where the overlap of free market goes in the wrong direction, it's anti-innovation and the wrong people make money and the, and the right people don't get the care they need. And so you've created this you know, new and radical system that takes away some of those aspects. And then we were talking about equality. So there's this real, and I saw it in some of your notes, real thought around citizenship. And I was surprised in the pirate journey, how much it aligned with ideas of citizenship and in a new democracy, a new thought around citizenship and an enhancement of the role of the citizen. Could you expand on that? I think piracy is a good dynamic when we're in this kind of interregnum of how do you create change? But I'm often asked, is piracy a permanent state of mind? And I, I don't think it is. I think it's a, a dynamic force that gets things moving. And perhaps for some people, once they've created new rules, citizenship becomes the evolution of that. And it sounds like you're in that kind of place. So is that a fair projection to make upon you? And if so, or if not, how do you see citizenship and, and its relationship with what you're doing? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of immediate thoughts with that. I think being in the army, I felt very much like a subject in that sort of feudal system. It's like, do what you're told in a, in, a, in a real designed command and control system. And I think, I suspect, I felt it to a small degree, but I suspect lots of people in the NHS 
who are doing their shift work on quite low pay feel like subjects as well. They're coming in and doing their grind for 12 hours and going home. So we developed Taxi Time as an independent social enterprise, right? Because that independence from the NHS allowed us to be pirate, be agile, be flexible and not conform to NHS regulations and bureaucracy. So we created a social enterprise. You know, me and Hisham were quite naive to creating a business and a social enterprise and what that involved with public sector workers. So as we looked around at what, what else there was, we saw other businesses, other social enterprises that treat the NHS as a consumer. It looks at what product it can sell the NHS and then just tries to do as much of that as it possibly can. And so that is what it is. There's a market for that. But there was something in that that me and Hisham were always really uncomfortable with, which is we didn't want to like step outside of the NHS just to then start fleecing it on a consumer basis. So I've always been pretty confident that I'm not a subject and I don't want to treat the NHS like a consumer. And then reading more in, in the book around this third category, the citizen, I thought, well, <laughs> there's the sweet spot. If we can understand that everybody's got a stake in this for the better and focus on that joint citizenship effort, it's going to benefit everybody here and be more true to our values and our social enterprise ethos and actually just be more inclusive as a setup. And Hesham, what's your view? You were nodding as I was saying it as well. Firstly, there are individuals on, on Hexy Time, from what I have, have seen, become protagonists within their community in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise been. So the example of the Nightingale that John's just given is a nice one. That There's also other campaigns that we have led, and the one that really sits closest to my heart around the uh, inequalities, particularly around black and minority ethnic staff. So what we know is that they have been disproportionately affected by COVID. I've lost lots of colleagues. And when I look at them, most of them are black or brown. And through that kind of COVID lens, it has really brought to light the inequalities within the healthcare system. And so one of the initiatives that we launched was around supporting some of those colleagues who may not have had the opportunity to progress higher up in their career because they are disproportionately at the front line through coaching, through CV support, through interview practice, and all the kind of things that we as a community have the expertise in, but is it currently inequally distributed? And so by allowing dozens of folk to offer their time, to, to offer that support on a one-hour aliquot basis has suddenly allowed what could have been good intention. Uh, you and I feel bad about the fact that you know these people have, have died or got long COVID into an action, which is I'm going to offer an hour to activism in that I am now contributing to a bigger piece that is moving change and moving in a way that we're trying to do things around here. So I think that to me is what citizenship means. It's where we have all got individual contributions to make as citizens of this community, which is part of a part of a bigger whole. I think Hextime has done because it's using that kind of one hour aliquot. You know, who who doesn't have an hour of time that they can give? You know, you know just as we would want to have to give a you know a bit of money to charity, can we also give an hour of, of our time to contribute to something that could make a difference to someone who I may never have met before actually, but could benefit from this. I suppose in, in respect of not getting overwhelmed by the scale of the challenges that people might see in front of them when working in, in healthcare, how would you advise people to sort of get started or maybe if they've got an idea or they've got an innovation, like you said at the beginning, there's probably a hell of a lot of expertise, skills, knowledge, innovation ripe for the taking. What was the spark for you? But where would you advise people to start? Hisham's always far more profound than me on questions like this. So I'll, with that build-up, I'll pass over to him in a second. But for, for what it's worth, when I came across into the NHS as like a middle manager grade, have been used to having the authority in my previous career to make change and suddenly not having it anymore. My instinct was to play the system at its own game. So my instinct was to get promoted and rise to a grade where I perceived I would have the authority, the power, the budget, the teams to make the change that I wanted. And, you know, I, I did a bit of that. But what I've learned personally is that change has got nothing to do or very, very limited 
correlation to your pay grade and your your job title and how big a deal you think you are it's far more around collaboration and sharing and being open with others and creating purpose so I guess in my first couple of years in the NHS I would have gone down the work harder route I was just like got to work up this greasy pole and have more influence in the system and now I've recognized that I can have far more impact by just working smarter working with the right people with clear purpose and open collaboration. So I think the upside to this to anyone listening would be that it's not actually about hard work. It's about smart work. And now for the profound stuff. I'd agree with everything on that, but I'd probably add to it actually. So which isn't, I think John talks about working smarter, not harder. What I would probably say is work kinder, not harder. So achieve more by giving stuff away. So be generous with your time and your experience and meet others' needs as well as your own and include that within your modus operandi. And part of that is being confident enough to say, I don't know what to do. You know, to have that humility to ask for help often. I think that is what can build you, me, us uh, as a collective. Because by doing so, by asking you for help, what you do unintentionally or intentionally is you've built up someone around you. And what we know is the best leaders are the ones who cultivate leadership around them and support others to achieve their dreams. So by that individual action, you've contributed to a, a collective community action. And, and the last thing I'd say is around recognizing and advocating for diversity in all things. As, as someone who's always from the earliest years really have been on the outskirts. You know, I've always been someone who wasn't really been in the out in crew. I think that has helped generate for me an interest in expanding my inner circle by seeking opinions from those people in the outskirts. And that's where innovation comes from. It's, it's by listening to dissonance and disagreement, understanding why there are different perspectives and listening with fascination to those alternative viewpoints because they're the ones are the ones that are going to solve the problems that we have for the future. Thank you. So good that's to such get a good that. answer. And I was going to ask you to expand on that as you opened up, because it's something that's come up in this podcast a few times, and I've thought about more and more over the last year, that if you're really in a position of leadership, and so you're at the furthest you can be at the front of something, the only real answer you've got at the moment is, I don't know. And that so goes against the grain of more 20th century style, here's the vision and here's how we're going to get there. And so that's looking increasingly like a lie or just the need for kind of sound bites. And I've said this and I'm sure of its truth. And then I was stopped the other day and challenged on, okay, so if the true thing for me as a leader is to say, I don't know, then how do I work it out? And I realized I hadn't really worked that out. So what you've just said, that gave me such a lot in terms of, yeah, be honest and that we don't know. But by seeking outside of your internal circles, by raising the leadership of others, I'm beginning to see some answers to my own question. So thank you for that. I remember I did a, a leadership training course last year or the year before, and part of that we were expected to, to shadow other leaders. And I remember spending an hour with the chief exec, and I remember he was chairing a meeting with his directors. I was astonished at the number of times that he said, I don't know. And I was thinking, well, he's the boss. <laughs> Surely he should know the answer to this. And there he was saying, I don't know. What do you think? And what I realized in that moment was firstly, he was you know, he's being sincerely humble, which which is, you know, that authenticity was there. But also what he was role modeling for his crew was the ability to say that they don't know and therefore get ideas from their teams and therefore setting the culture for an environment which isn't just, you know, yes, sir, and ticking the boxes to, I, I don't know, and let's find out if these are the right boxes to tick. Yeah. So there's, there's something there from about role modeling that attitude of, confidence of not being certain which then can pervade your organization and therefore encourage improvement and innovation to flourish absolutely there is a kind of paradox in that yes you don't know the answers to certain technical clinical questions because you don't have that expertise anymore you're not close to the source of the problem or the the issue but what there is, and what we sometimes missed, is a certain innate wisdom about changing things. I think that comes up in Pirates at all. Like there was something in both of you that said, I do know that this could be better. 
and I trust myself enough to know that there is a different solution here. So there was something that you kind of like did know enough to not only raise as an idea, but actually make happen. So when people say like the rules don't work, we need to create something new. That is something that people do know. You might not know how quite how to get there. I think that's the unknowing where you do need to see other people and collaborate and do all this, you know, great stuff. But trusting yourself enough to know that you do know that things need to change and you're going to be able to do something. And I guess that's the same thing as what pirates did around creating rules about how to make the rules. So the most important thing for me underlying pirates is not that they created a set of certainties for how things will run, but they created a way to make those kinds of decisions that included everybody. That makes a slight, slight difference. That's a commonality I see across all the different pirate crews. It's sort of in a strength, but also an ability to not know. I think that's a really important point, Alex, and it feeds back to the question that Sam asked, or I think it may have been you asked right at the start around why has the response to the book been so great amongst healthcare professionals? I, I agree with all the responses that John gave. I think there's probably a, another one for me, which is really important, which links into your point there about not knowing. I think because we're in an industry where we have people's lives in our hands, where not knowing can be misinterpreted as not being competent, where not having the answers isn't an option. There's something really difficult about saying, I don't know, because that then goes right to the heart of saying that you're not good enough if you don't know the answer to these. And I think that is an important point when it comes to trying to find innovative solutions and why this kind of stuff is pushed underground is because if I were to say as a consultant pediatrician I don't know what to do and people will kind of naturally assume that I'm no good as a person because that's my professional role you know if you have to come in half you'll say pediatrician in there that need to be able to express those and answer those questions in a way is pushed down this route because there's no legitimate vehicle to resolve that uncertainty and I think that's what Hexi Time is trying to achieve. Thank you so much. That's just so enlightening and just like wonderful to hear the story and show what you've been able to achieve with this. So thank you. Really, really is. It's just great work. You've helped me make sense of why this interest there and then you just embody it. That last point you're making was that that point of going back to negative capability. And that's where innovation really sits. And we've allowed ourselves, the professionalization of innovation has really got in the way of innovation. So thank you very much indeed for your time. It was nice to have met you, Sam, and, and you again, Alex, at the same time. Really nice to talk things through. Thanks for the space.